Like you may not have access to a therapist who can help you decolonize that space in your head that says, well, I mean, this is just what I have to deal with by work because I work with these people. It's not, but you are socially conditioned to think that A, it is, and B, there's nothing you can do about it. And C, they are okay for treating you like this. And none of those things are the case. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire. This week, we're going to talk about work from a science nerd perspective. Listen, even if you're lucky enough like me to work in your field that is also your passion, work is work. There's parts of it that no one wants to do, but parts that have to get done to do things like eat and live. If you just had to do your job, in my case, write science articles, or maybe you build widgets or code doohickeys or teach thingamabobs or do the accounting of wackadoos, just doing your job would be one thing. But the thing about humans, is that we are social species, and most of the time, we do our jobs around other people. Often, we work under bosses or in teams, and the problem with humans is that we are jerks, and we will marginalize people, people who work on the team with us or under us. Sometimes, you will be the one doing the marginalizing. But if you are a person of color, an LGBTQIA person, a white woman, or a person with a disability, you are much more likely to be the marginalized person. It keeps us miserable, and it keeps us from getting ahead. It keeps us down. And often, the people who try to tell us how to get out of it say really unhelpful things like, lean in, or just quit your job, or just do everything like a white man would. It doesn't work that way. And there's research to prove it. Alan Henry knows. He's the service editor at Wired, has been the smarter living editor at the New York Times, and before that, he was the editor-in-chief of the productivity and lifestyle blog, Lifehacker. He knows a lot about working, and about working while marginalized, and he wrote a book, Seen, Heard, and Paid, The New Work Rules for the Marginalized, which comes out on June 7th, 2022. Alan, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. First, I wanted to ask, what made you decide to kind of write this book? Was there a precipitating moment? Hmm. Well, it really started with an experience I had when I was the editor-in-chief of Lifehacker. Um, I'd been writing about these productivity tips and tricks for many, many years. And Lifehacker was part of the kind of Gawker Media family of websites, which Gawker Media went bankrupt, was sold to Univision. I was there for that transition. And I met our new CEO and... I kind of had to force myself into his field of view. He had made one-on-one appointments to meet with all the other editors in chief. He had introduced himself to everyone in the newsroom and everything, but I didn't get that privilege. He didn't really seem interested in talking to me. So after one big meeting, I kind of went and I stood next to him for a little while just to kind of try and insert myself into his field of view to say, hey, I'm a person who wants to talk to you. And he just kind of ignored me. And it wasn't until my uh, news assistant, uh, who is a white man, just kind of walked up and jostled him over towards me and said, hey, I work at Lifehacker. Uh, this is my boss, Alan Henry. He, he is the editor-in-chief of Lifehacker, that he finally turned his attention to me. And, and I got the feeling that there was something else going on there that I just wasn't totally comfortable with. Uh, I, I kind of put it in the back of my mind. And I knew that things weren't well there. I could kind of sense the winds changing. But so I decided to call a friend who worked at the New York Times and I said, hey, you know, things are going kind of at eh, life hacker. <laughs> Let me, what do you, what do you guys have going on? We talked a little while ago. His name's Cliff Levy. He's a masthead editor there. Um, he and I 
got lunch and he said, oh, I thought I was going to have to convince you to come work for the Times. And I said, no, I was just curious what you guys had going on. Eventually, long story short, you know, he brought me in to essentially recreate Lifehacker at the New York Times. It's called Smarter Living. And we were doing that. And then I got another dose of a situation where I had been brought in and I was doing work that I thought was great. But I was surrounded by some people who didn't respect my expertise, my background, my skills for a variety of reasons. In some cases, it was socioeconomic. You know, I I wasn't an Ivy League J school grad. Um, In other cases, it was I hadn't come from someplace that that the New York Times considered one of its competitors. So ultimately, this led to me kind of being sidelined in a couple of projects that I really wanted to be involved in. And I just got myself thinking, what's going on here? Like, I'm using all of these tools, all of these tips that I've written about, and they're not working for me. What is the difference? And that led to an article I wrote in my own section, more or less before anybody could tell me not to write it, uh, called What to Do If You Feel Like You're Being Discriminated Against at Work. And that was the moment that I kind of understood that what was going on to me is not just an isolated thing. It wasn't just in my head. Uh, The folks that I spoke to for that article and then subsequently for the book said, no, I mean, there's a lot of data here that says that what you're experiencing isn't just unfortunate, but it's common, especially for people who are in marginalized groups. And it was at that moment that I said to myself, okay, I've been trading in tips and tricks to help people live better, work better, do things easier for a very long time. This has been a missing part of the equation. I really need to fill this in for the people who may be reading those tips and say to themselves, oh, I can't apply that. My boss would never let me do that. Um, And that's kind of how the book idea got started. Yeah. And I have to say the book is is full of um, a lot of kind of examples of That, that you've encountered of being marginalized at work and they are uh, <laughs> ghastly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, the laptop cable was just what really got me. <laughs> the There's a story cable. in the book about a laptop cable and it just, I, yeah. oh, wow. <laughs> I, I mean, it still gets to me that like, I, I, I still, to this day, I don't know who did it. I think I have an idea who was responsible or who may have been responsible, but like a classic microaggression, I spent so much time hand wringing over who was it? Was it intentional in a bad way, right? Maybe it was just somebody who repeatedly needed to charge their phone or something like that. And they just were forgetful and never plugged my laptop back in, which led to really bad consequences for me. But it's just after the 10th or 15th time you stop, wondering and you just start thinking about, you know, what can I do about it? Or do I just need to kind of shut up and deal with it? Um, In my case, I decided I was just going to deal with it partially. Like I didn't want to rock the boat. I didn't want to call too much attention to it, but I mean, it took being out of that situation to realize exactly how harmful it really was. Yeah. It's just, it's one of those things that Well, I also just can't envision someone with the audacity to do something like that over and over (laughs) and over again. I mean, I I understood that, like, I I tried. I tried for a long time. The first couple of times it happened, I just thought to myself, oh, maybe maybe somebody was coming to sit next to the person who sat next to me and they just wanted to charge their laptop while they were at my desk. And I work from home semi-frequently enough that I didn't think too much of coming into the office and my desk not being perfectly the way it was. Um, 
But I thought for a long time, I even thought maybe it's a cleaning staff, right? Maybe the cleaning staff, they come by, they wipe down the desks or the dividers between the desks. Maybe they just pulled the cable. But that would be once in a while. It, this was pretty regular. And I feel like when it got to the point where I was starting to miss things, when I'd come into work in time to make a meeting, but my laptop's dead and I need to wait for it to charge before I can even log in to see where the meeting is or to take my laptop to that meeting and take notes, I, I realized that this was starting to impact my work. So the intention wasn't important anymore. It was the action of the person, regardless of their intention, that was the thing that I should really focus on. And I feel like that was another thing that went on through the book. Like I'm talking about the importance of, hey, just because somebody does something to you and they say, oh, I didn't mean it in a negative way, or I didn't mean it because you are a black person, because you are a woman in this all male workspace, because you are Muslim in a predominantly Christian workspace. I didn't mean it because of that. That doesn't change the harm that they did. And I feel like it's more important to be able to call attention to the action rather than the intention when you're dealing with microaggressions like that. It's really, really, it gets away from the defensiveness that naturally comes. Like none of us want to be told that like, hey, you hurt me. No one wants, I mean, oh, I didn't mean to hurt you. I don't want to hurt people. But the thing you did hurts. I would like it if you stop doing the thing that hurts. And that's an easier thing to say, oh, okay, fine, without doubling down on what you meant by doing the thing. Yeah. Um, so I also wanted to ask, and we're going to get back to that. Um, yeah. There are a lot of books out there about succeeding at work. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what makes this one different? Well, uh, for one, I wanted to target all of these experiences directly at marginalized people. And I, I know that that sounds like a monolith, but I, one thing that I, I a phrase that I kind of coined a little while ago is this notion that marginalization is for everyone. Everyone can find themselves marginalized depending on the environment that they're in. Disabled folks are marginalized every day just by proxy of working in an ableist environment, you know, in an ableist society, one that doesn't have elevators in our subway stations, for example, or depending on the city you live in, obviously. But it's just, I mean, when you are, let's say you're a disabled person at a company where everyone else is able-bodied. And let's say you have an invisible disability. Well, those invisible disabilities are the ones that people discount the most. I had a friend, uh, Tessa Miller, who wrote a book called uh, What Makes or What Doesn't Kill You. Um, I think it was What Doesn't Kill You. But she wrote a great book about how one time when she was 24, she was working at Lifehacker. So we've been friends ever since. Um, She got sick. And one Thanksgiving, she just got sick and never got better. And it turned out that her... Uh, body just revolted against her. She has a terrible case of IBS and Crohn's disease. And she went through all of the frontier uh, treatments for it. I mean, from fecal transplants to um, now, I think she is on a very, very expensive uh, cancer medication that she has to have IV every month or yeah, I think it's every month just to function, right? Just to, to, to make sure that her body doesn't consume itself. And If you look at her, she is a kind of socially, stereotypically beautiful young woman. And somebody can go to her and say, hey, come on, we're going to go get drinks. And she has a world of concerns that she needs to run through in her head when somebody says, let's go get drinks after work or something like that, that other people don't. And 
if she brings them up to other people, she runs the risk of them shutting her out of those opportunities, of those conversations. And that in itself is a way of being marginalized. I mean, it doesn't have to be a visible disability. It could just, if you could, I mean, it could be, I mean, uh, it could be being in a wheelchair and the bar that your coworkers always go to doesn't have a ramp, you know, you're shut out of that and everything that goes on there. And so it sucks. It sucks, but it's a, a thing that can happen to anyone. And I wanted to speak exclusively to the experiences of marginalized people or people who feel like they can't break in to the cool kids club, or they feel like they're not a quote unquote culture fit for their work environment. Like there are tools to help you succeed in your career too. You don't have to just deal with constantly being shut out and not being able to work on the things that matter to you or not being able to advance your career as a result of those things. I mean, yeah, I'm going to tell you to block off your calendar if you can, but I'm also going to acknowledge that if you do that, your manager, if they don't understand their own privilege, is going to come back to you and say, why are you blocking off your calendar all day? What are you doing? You know, it's, and that is exactly, that's another thing that happened to me. Yeah, that one was also stunning. (laughs) You know, everyone wants access to your calendar. And so you block off the places on your calendar where you're like, hey, I'm not available that time. They're like, oh, no, I decided you are available that time. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I've decided. And I mean, for some people that works, right? I mean, that was a story that happened to me at the New York Times. I had a colleague who had his no meeting Tuesdays. He blocked off his whole Tuesdays. And I, I, as somebody who's written that tip, for Lifehacker, I'm just, and I was also used it in my previous life. I mean, I worked in an office before I got into journalism. I worked in, in um, academia before that, but I also would love to block off my calendar for times when I need to do deep work, but it worked for him and it didn't work for me. When I tried to do a new no meeting Thursdays, I found myself getting pushback from people who are just like, well, everyone else can make Thursdays. Why can't you make Thursdays? Come on, you can you can make an hour. And that's the same pushback that he didn't get ever because people just respected naturally that he was doing important things during the times that his calendar was blocked off. And I wasn't afforded that same benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and that's one of the ways in which people can experience discrimination, mm-hmm. um, marginalization. Um, and so you actually wrote, so this book originally sort of started as an article mm-hmm. um, about your own experiences being marginalized at the New York Times. Um, and I was wondering if you could go over, like, what are some of the forms that marginalization takes? Because mm-hmm. I think people often don't realize what it looks like and the ways in which they might actually be perpetuating some of that marginalization themselves. Yeah, that it's true. I mean, uh, geez, it's sometimes marginalizing others can be as simple as having your own little office click, you know, everybody who goes to lunch together and never invites that one person. And I think that it's important sometimes to analyze why you don't invite that other person. Maybe it, maybe you have a valid reason. Maybe that person talks too much or actually genuinely doesn't get along with anyone else in the group. Those things are fine. But if you're marginalized, if you're, if you're actively excluding someone because you don't think they fit into your cool kids click, then you're marginalizing someone like someone is on the outside looking in, possibly wishing that they could be a part of it. Um, I experienced that in a number of places, not just the New York Times, but beyond that, like other ways that people 
can be marginalized without realizing that they're marginalized. Uh, they get assigned a certain kind of work, a certain class of work. Uh, in the book, I talk about this in terms of office housework versus glamour work. Uh, the office housework is the kind of work, and I got a chance to talk to the uh, social scientists who coined this term, uh, Joan C. Williams. She writes a lot for the Harvard Business Review. She has a fantastic way of putting it like the office work office housework is the work that has to get done in order for a team to function. So that is booking meetings. That is uh, updating calendar appointments, creating meeting agendas. That is doing the PowerPoint presentation, stuff like that. But then there's the glamour work. The glamour work is the work that gets you noticed by your manager. It's a, the work that gets you promoted. It's a work that gets you uh, a book deal. <laughs> it's the work that gets you out to a conference to present what's going on in your industry. Um, those are the things that raise your profile. And heaven forbid I actually say these words, but it, they build, quote unquote, your personal brand. Um, and ostensibly, the office housework, not ostensibly, but I mean, we have data to, to support this too. Office housework tends to fall to women in every workplace and specifically women of color. And I illustrate this by asking everyone I talk to about it. Like, think about the last time you had a quote unquote office mob. And most of us know we, we've had office moms, right? Like I, I've had an office mom before that she was a person who knew where all the supplies were and knew all the best places to order lunch and all that great stuff. But have you ever had an office dad? Have you ever had an office uncle? Like they may exist, but I have never met one, you know? So that's just an example of how that work kind of falls downhill to the most marginalized person in the room. And you may think that you're doing work that keeps the team alive and you're the beating heart of an organization. Everybody appreciates the office mom, but the office mom doesn't get promoted. The office mom doesn't become the manager. They don't become the district manager or the, they don't go up to the C-suite. They stay in their place, taking care of everyone else's emotional labor until they change jobs or retire. And meanwhile, their privileged male colleagues go on to do presentations and write books and become thought leaders in their industry. And it's not fair, but it is a thing that happens at the base level of our organizations, even on our teams. And we don't realize it always, but we are participating in marginalizing those people. Yeah, and I, I wanted to go back because you noted um, that a lot of marginalization ends up looking like cliquish behavior. Yeah. Um, and the interesting thing is, I think many of us might think that cliques are just something that happens when you have a group, right? Yeah. Like some people <laughs> will bond and some will not, yeah. and you'll get a click. And, and that's not to say it's like, we're all mean girls, like I hope we're not, but, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you, know, but you argue in the book that that's not true, that work clicks are not a natural consequence of human social evolution, <laughs> what causes work clicks? I mean, at the end of the day, I, I feel like work clicks are generally people who gravitate towards like people, like people who are like them, who have similar opinions to them, who do similar work. I mean, we, it, 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 can, uh, it can feel like it is natural, but it is not natural. It is a thing that happens when we feel comfortable with somebody that we either just met or we are starting to get familiar with and we settle into a routine with them that we are unwilling to break out of in order to kind of expand our horizons, make new friends, introduce ourselves to other people. Those things are hard to do, don't get me wrong, but they are worthwhile doing 
for everyone, frankly, because then you broaden the number of people that you work with. But it's true that like, I, I feel like work clicks tend to happen um, in pods, in departments. I mean, especially managers who get protective of, I mean, it's natural to be in some ways protective of your people, but protective of what your team does and is kind of isolationist when it comes to the way the rest of the organization is structured. I, I, when I worked at the Times, I had uh, part of my mission, my job at the Times was to kind of spread the, the gospel of service journalism, so to speak, across the paper. And I would meet with different desk editors in order to kind of make the case that, hey, you're writing a very important political story. Your reader may not un- understand the court case or the legal doctrine that that underpins this this political decision. Maybe you should write a sidebar that explains the background here for someone who wants to be informed as to what the impact of the meaning of the news actually is. And some of those editors were very receptive to that. They're like, oh, yeah, I mean, a more educated reader is a better reader. And others were not receptive at all. They just consistently believed that they and their approach and the people that that kind of aligned with their approach to doing things were naturally good at it and didn't need input from anyone on the outside who wasn't like them. And that's how these clicks kind of turn against other people. It's one thing to say, hey, we're all doing great work together. It's another thing to say, we're all doing great work together and no one understands us. No one gets us. We're the only ones who understand what we do. And as soon as that switch is flipped, and I feel like it's it, it comes not naturally, but I feel like it comes with a certain level of authority, uh, that's when you start shutting other people and new perspectives out. And as soon as that happens, yep, that's it. It's over for you. Your team is actively keeping itself isolated, but also pushing away other people that may have something valuable to add. Yeah. And I was kind of wondering how, how does a workplace do something different? Mm. You know, because I feel like I hear a lot about workplaces that pay lip service to this and you'll hear phrases like we're all a family, which is actually (laughs) really toxic and please don't do that. Yeah, Um, (laughs) But I was wondering, are there examples of work cultures that have successfully kind of fought against the work click? Yeah. I mean, so Ruch Katolshian uh, is one of my primary sources for the book, but also was one of the primary sources for my New York Times article. She has a great book also out called uh, Inclusivity on Purpose. Uh, It's out from the MIT uh, University Press. And she argues that being more open to the viewpoints of people who are coming in from the outside. Because, I mean, in general, no one really likes to do this. Like whenever a consultant comes in and or a, a contractor comes in and says, these are all the things wrong with your organization. This is how we're going to fix it. The natural reaction is distress. Like I've been caught out. I'm doing something wrong. How dare this person? I don't know. Come in and tell me how to do my job. But in some cases, yeah, they are coming. That, that's their whole job to come here and tell you to do what your job is. But in other cases, this person just really wants to help, or this other team just really wants to help. Um, and trying actively to foster that kind of feedback and making it part of your corporate culture, part of your organizational culture, is essential. And I think that another thing about uh, organizations that do this very, very well is that they teach their managers to separate their egos from the work that they do as much as possible and try to judge people not just on their their the work that they do and the success of it, but how good they are at making positive change on their teams. 
Uh, I talk a lot in the book about the concept of psychological safety. And that is, you know, the, the, that is a term that describes like how you feel at work. Do you feel like you are empowered as well as having kind of a seat at the table? Um, and this is something also particularly important for marginalized folks. We may feel like we have a seat at the table, but if we're not empowered to speak, if we're not empowered to bring our ideas to the table, then we're not, we don't, we don't have psychological safety to actually do anything in our jobs except for whatever is handed to us. So managers that cultivate psychological safety on their teams uh, in general, and this is something that I got from Adam Grant when I interviewed him for the book, in general, not only do they see better performance on their teams, they generally have teams that are more inclusive and more open to new ideas and approaches. And they're also more interested in different voices that can lend their experience to the same goals that they're trying to achieve on their on their own part. Yeah, I, I noticed I was really interested in the section on psychological safety, because I yeah. think that's something, that's a concept probably a lot of people haven't kind of encountered before. Mm-hmm. And it also made me realize something that I have done that was a sign of my own psychological safety. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I was very, uh, I was very proud of myself that I would go around and every time my boss at my previous job would praise me for something I did, like I did a really good feature or something like that, I would just smile real big at her and go, thanks, I'd love a raise. Yep. <laughs> and I just did it over and over and over again. And yep. I got a raise. And you got a raise. I got more than one raise. And people would always ask me, why, how did you get a raise? <laughs> you asked and for it. I would tell them, I would tell them, I literally just over and over said, I'd love a raise. Yep. And then I realized I had the psychological safety I had that sense of safety with my boss Mm -hmm. that I would not incur her wrath for asking for a raise. Yep. We had a good enough like relationship that she understood my sense of humor. Mm -hmm. She knew that I was kidding, but not really. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) She knew I'd love a raise. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And it's beautiful. But it's definitely a psychological safety thing. And it's, and it's something that I began to realize other people could not do. Yeah. You know, um, I also wanted to ask about diversity because one of the things that I think might shock people is that you note that diversity does not fix marginalization on its own. And that's something not. I think probably surprises people who haven't thought very hard about it. Why doesn't a diverse workplace preempt marginalization? <laughs> well, uh, first of all, a lot of, a lot of it can splinter out again into specific groups of people who gravitate to each other and essentially isolate themselves into their own little silos. That is one thing that happens in every workplace, um, regardless of who works there. But the other thing goes back to this concept of having a seat at the table, but not being able to do anything with it, right? So just because you have a diverse team, and to be fair, most teams I've worked on, including at the New York Times, including at Lifehacker, and even before then, uh, just kind of in my previous life as you know, a, a project manager, these teams were diverse. Then there were lots of people on them from different backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different racial and ethnic backgrounds, uh, different religions and everything. But at the same time, sometimes it still comes down to who's the loudest guy in the room? Who is the guy in the room who takes credit for everyone else's ideas? And who is the manager who lets them do that? Who is the person who leads all the projects and then down talks everyone else who has an idea to pitch? I mean, sometimes it's one person. 
Sometimes it can be two or three people. But if you are a person of any marginalized group, and I was wanted to say a person of color because people of color are traditionally socialized like this to kind of step back and not be perceived as the social baggage that they carry into the workplace with them. But this goes for everybody. Um, if you have that social baggage and you bring it with you to the office, you have to navigate that in addition to trying to do your best work. So me, and I, there's the story that I start the book with, this notion that I, I was sitting in a meeting at the New York Times uh, with a team that my team was getting uh, introduced to. And we all went around the room and introduced ourselves and what we did and the roles that we played. And one of my colleagues up here, mind you, was late to the meeting and he came in and we were just past the introductions. And my manager who was in the room too said, oh, so-and-so's here. Why don't you introduce yourself and, and tell everybody a little bit about what you do? And he introduced himself and he then proceeded to say that he did everything that I did and everything that a couple other people on our team did. And then he proceeded to say that he was in charge of it. He managed it. He makes sure it gets done. And that was objectively untrue. I mean, it was it's actual, a, a bold-faced lie. And my manager was in the room at the time, and I'm staring daggers at her. And she's she was wonderful, don't get me wrong, but she didn't want to rock the boat. She didn't want to cause drama. Um, and that is how sometimes you can have a room full of diverse people, but one or two people will step up and say, I'm the person, I'm the one in charge, I'm the one with the bright ideas, I'm the one who makes this organization, this team tick, I'm the person who's the face of it and the one that you should bring your ideas to. That's how he makes sure that he gets the glamour work. And that's how he makes sure he doesn't have to do the housework because that's just stuff other people do that he makes sure gets done. But also in that same sentence, he's saying he doesn't do. Um, and if I didn't, and frankly, I had a choice in that situation. I could either step up and say, hey, that's not quite accurate. We work together on those things. But if I did that, I now have to deal with the social baggage that I bring into that room. Am I the angry black man? Am I aggressive? Am I threatening? Am I too assertive? If I were a woman of color, I have to, I have to run the risk of being perceived as sassy or fiery um, or just also aggressive, too aggressive, not a team player. Those are, that's all of those things is stuff that the people who are marginalized have to weigh when they're sitting in a space that ostensibly they are qualified to be in, they deserve the space they take up, but they can still wind up being marginalized just because they don't want, they want to avoid those potential negative outcomes. So diversity is great, yeah. but we still give jerks jobs <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and allow managers to have no spine. True. Very, very true. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm taking away. Mm -hmm. um, so I did want to talk a little bit about microaggressions. Yeah. Um, and I feel like most people are probably aware of the more macro microaggressions, <laughs> like when people just up and touch a Black person's hair or yeah. say that anything a Latinx person does is fiery. Don't right. do any of those things. Please don't Please do no. those things. Please don't. <laughs> don't. <laughs> um, but you actually referenced a story in your book that is much more subtle and much more insidious mm. where an editor asked for the removal of a story. Yes. And I was wondering if you could talk about this experience and what it is that made it a microaggression and that made it so difficult to deal with. 
Uh, so that's a beautiful story because it both is about microaggressions, but illustrates microaggressions. <laughs> so I commissioned an article about what to do about workplace microaggressions. And for anybody keeping up, we are, yes, I'm talking about an article about microaggressions. And it's what makes it so great. It is. <laughs> and it was by an amazing, amazing uh, writer, Hana Yoon, who's worked with me on a number of things. And the article was beautiful. We got it edited and we got it copy edited, fact checked and everything. And we published it in our section. Right. And I'm, I was smarter living editor. I was one of a few smarter living editors, but it was my section. I had authority to do it and everything at the time. Smarter living had a section on the New York times homepage where we were, it was kind of counter programming to a lot of the aggressive news cycle stuff. And our entire purpose was to highlight evergreen service journalism that could be useful at any time to give readers something else to look at. Um, and so I published a story and a few hours later, I got a call or I got an email. I got an email from one of our homepage editors who manages the kind of what's on the homepage right now and where does it live and stuff like that. And they said, Hey, I'm really, really sorry about this, but uh, we need to take your microaggressions article off the homepage. And up to this point, we had control over this little space on the homepage. Like our team, our desk had control over the space on the homepage. So it was unusual for them to get involved at all. And I was like, well, oh, was something wrong with that? It? It, did, did like something come back? The, the writer had a problem or a source didn't want to be you know, something, something journalistic. And they said, no, no, just one of, one of the senior editors said that it's, quote unquote, not in step with the current news cycle and asked us to take it off the homepage and to stop promoting it on social. And it was that latter part, stop promoting it on social, that was also kind of the death knell, right? I realized that it wasn't just a visual thing. It wasn't just a, oh, this might be jarring to somebody on the homepage. Not that I believe that really either, but it was essentially they got in the order to bury the story in the only way that they could. They couldn't take it down, but they could hide it and make sure that it was ignored. And as a result, that's more or less what happened. I mean, is SEO saved the day to some degree, but that's just because I picked a good headline for it. But ultimately, I, I found out later that it was somebody that I really trusted and respected and had met with several times who actually ordered that. And I just... It was one of those things where I'm like, this is exactly why I commissioned the story. This is why I, I wanted to, to, to do this in the first place was to give people tools to understand, yes, this thing, when somebody gives you a terrible excuse for why they're treating you differently, it is not a good, it's not a good reason. They're probably lying or they're bowing to their own pressure or the pressure of somebody that they can't avoid. And then on top of that, it's just somebody who you would think was friendly, was supportive, was an ally, can then turn around and do something like this to you. And I mean, in my case, the only recourse I had was to try and promote the story in other ways that I had more control over. But at the end of the day, you know, we just had to do what this person asked. I'm now really curious where this person saw themselves in the microaggression story. I, I, I'm, I'm curious. So curious. I, I mean, and, and I, I actually interviewed Hannah for the book because she was just as shocked by it as I was. Um, so it's like, what is it? What did it feel like to write an article about microaggressions and then have that article buried as a result of a microaggression? And she was just like, you know, she's been through so many things as a freelancer that it didn't really surprise her. <laughs> 
And she's also a woman of color. So she's like, this, this, this is not news to me. But to me, I was incensed. I was just like, I, don't, I didn't understand how this could happen, for one, especially at a place that is ostensibly, according to its mission and its values, as committed to truth, openness, transparency, honesty, as the New York Times. And that's not a dig at the time specifically. I mean, I love the New York Times. I love my time there. And I still have many friends who work there. But this stood out in my mind, and it always will. So one of the problems with the word microaggression, in my opinion, is that it contains the word micro, Mm. which implies that it is small. (laughs) But as you point out, these are not small. These, these are events that have physical and psychological health consequences, mm-hmm. right? And I was wondering, can you talk about what kind of physical and psychological health consequences these have to the people who are dealing with them? Yeah. So for one, yeah, we also, we have data that indicates that people of color and specifically marginalized folks have more negative health outcomes when they do see doctors. They have more stress-related issues, more stress-related conditions um, based on uh, their work environment, their work relationships. I mean, we have kind of a near epidemic of mental health problems, specifically in Black communities, not because of some innate issue with Blackness, but because of the social conditioning that all of us get with regard to like whether or not uh, we are socioeconomically mobile enough, whether we are respectable enough and what our proximity to whiteness is and whether we can be successful in our careers or whether or not we just survive a police traffic stop, for example. Um, and that's not just us. I mean, microaggressions, a lot of people like to define microaggressions as like if somebody is um, I don't know, cat called on a train on the way home or somebody in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst, midst of the pandemic, an Asian person riding the train home uh, is accosted by someone on the train. Like, oh, they say that's a microaggression. But that implies that it's minor and, and that that's traumatizing. And, and, and those things that happen to us, they add up. Um, another great example, um, a disabled friend of mine who is in a wheelchair Uh, used to talk a lot about people who would just move her in her chair while she's waiting to cross the street because an able-bodied person just considered her in their way. And they just didn't even think that this is a human being with a rich inner life and a whole mind sitting in this chair and at the crosswalk waiting for the light, just like you. And they just move her like a piece of furniture. You know, I have been I have a very good therapist. <laughs> he understands journalism. Um, but I, I, I wish that more people had access to therapy and mental health services, because even if this happens to you and you are a full-time cash register at Walmart, like you may not have access to a therapist who can help you decolonize that space in your head that says, well, I mean, this is just what I have to deal with by work because I work with these people. It's not but you are socially conditioned to think that A, it is, and B, there's nothing you can do about it, and C, they are okay for treating you like this. And none of those things are the case, but we do have to worry about that. I mean, and and we have to worry about it in a way that other people do, other privileged people specifically do not. And I do say privileged to, as an umbrella term, because I don't just mean white people. That's not fair. I mean, people who have some social privilege over another group that has social baggage that they have to deal with. 
Yeah, because of course, people can be marginalized in some areas and not in others. Mm -hmm. They can have some kinds of privilege. There's all sorts of intersectional things that occur here. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But one of the things that kind of struck me um, in this book is how much of a catch-22 marginalized people end up in. Mm -hmm. Like to stop the marginalization, you should speak up. But if you aren't psychologically safe, speaking Mm -hmm. up puts you in more danger of marginalization. Yep. (laughs) so your book focuses on kind of what the marginalized person can do Mm -hmm. um, within this difficult situation. But I was actually wondering what can other people in the workplace do? What Ah. can managers do? What can people who are on the sidelines watching a man come in and claim that he does your job (laughs) do? (laughs) Yeah, that's, uh, it's tough because a lot of it involves Uh, disrupting the systems at play that allow people like allow the best assignments to go to the loudest person in the room instead of the most qualified it it, it, and managers have to play this role uh, front and center like managers need to learn how to assign work fairly and equitably uh, instead of allowing somebody who seems to be interested in the thing do the thing all the time Um, managers also have to get out of the habit of saying you're good at a thing so that's the thing you're going to do and instead ask the ask people and ask their workers hey you're good at this is this a thing you want to do Um, I know too many people who are in whole careers because they were good at something, not because they had any passion for it whatsoever. So that's one thing. Managers desperately need to to foster some sense of psychological safety on their teams and disrupt those systems. Like when I say uh, remote work is the thing right now, at least in most places, almost everybody has some kind of hybrid work if you work in an office at all. Um, Pay attention to who is on your team and who's speaking up and who isn't speaking up. And you don't need to call people out in a meeting. Like some, one of my managers used to do that. They used to say, uh, they used to be very proud of like, hey, so-and-so, you've been really quiet in this meeting. Do you have anything to add? And if that person says no, let them go. But it's just saying, hey, I see you and you are a valued member here. I value your input. I value your expertise. I want you to contribute that's enough for some people to kind of get them to step forward because you've already stepped forward. You've said to them, I value you here. I don't want you to be on the outside looking in. And in many cases, at least for me, sometimes that's all I need. Sometimes all I need is somebody to say, Hey, I'm in your corner here. If, if a manager isn't comfortable doing that, then you can take it offline. And Oh man, I hate that phrase. Take it offline, but it's, but it's real. You can step off and say in the next meeting or after or in a private uh, one-on-one conversation, Hey, I have, you don't really say too much in the meetings or what's going on with you. How are you doing? Embrace a more empathetic style of management that does focus a little bit on how well your people are doing personally, as well as how they're doing productively in the tasks that you have them in. Um, and speaking of one-on-ones, I, this is advice that I give to marginalized folks as well. Uh, embrace your one-on-one with your manager. Just, you got to have one. It, it doesn't have to be weekly. I mean, most managers like to do it weekly who like to do it at all. Um, I'm a manager. I have one with my direct reports every other week. And we come to chat. We come ready to talk about, you know, hey, what do you want to do? What are you interested in doing? And it's not for me a way of like 
telling them what their review is going to look like before they get it. Although I think that's also important to do, but in, I really do genuinely want to catch up and say, Hey, are you actually working on things that you enjoy working on? Uh, would your skills be better put to something else? Uh, that's how managers can disrupt that office housework, glamour work kind of cycle. But I mean, marginalized employees, like, yeah, there are lots of tools for them, but like the, the privileged employees have the opportunity to say, Hey, this glamour assignment is wonderful. You know what? I want to tag team it with X person who has not gotten a great assignment lately, knowing when to uh, share a byline, knowing when to share a project knowing when to pass the microphone instead to say, hey, this, this story, this project is about our client reaching out to marginalized communities. Maybe I'm not the best person to lead it. Maybe this person is. Just giving that opportunity to somebody else, even if it means that maybe you don't get the glamour work this time, is really important to be able and comfortable to do. And I find that that's the hardest ask for a lot of people, to ask them to step aside and potentially sacrifice a little of their own kind of career trajectory to help someone else on a team. It's a lot to ask, but it pays dividends. And and I learned this through the book publishing process, just getting this book written and published, I've met so many people who were willing to help me and then turn around and say, hey, I also have a book. Would you be willing to read it? And of course I want to read it. You help me out. I, I, I can't thank you enough. I'm genuinely grateful. So I'm willing to help you too. And that's how you build those networks of people that can help each other. Right. It's like, uh, it's like scratching people's backs or picking yeah. people's knits. Like, exactly. <laughs> you know, you pick your knits, you, you pick my knits, I'll pick your knits, exactly. like that sort of thing. We all we're have so, knits. Yeah. <laughs> we're, so, we're social animals. We'll groom each other. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I was very struck uh, by some of the statistics that you point out um, in the book mm-hmm. that white women, men of color and women of color are much more likely to feel that they have to be worker bees to like mm-hmm. keep their heads down and do the work and that the work will, of course, magically be recognized. Right. I personally cannot tell you how many white men have told me this specifically. Yeah. yeah. There's this attitude that like, if you build it, they will come. They will come. Yeah. But there's only one field of dreams, you guys. Exactly. Only one. Yep. It's 100% true. <laughs> and I wondered if you had any thoughts as to why that attitude is so persistent. Mm-hmm. A lot of it has to do with socialization and a lot of it, I mean, some of it has to do with prejudice, right? Um, which, you know, is a big word and a lot of people like prejudice. Ew, no, that's gross. I don't have that. I'm not prejudiced against anyone. Yeah, but we all are, <laughs> you know, we all have our own prejudices and our own beliefs about other people. And when they walk through the door, we make an assumption based on not just their appearance, but like the way they carry themselves and their race, their ethnicity, their gender, uh, about their socioeconomic status, their intelligence level, their um, their background. You know, we we have all of these preconceived notions about them. And there's also data that shows that when we push back on those uh, preconceived notions, we are more likely to go back to our own kind of predained beliefs about that person. Like, oh, you're wearing, I don't know, Chanel. I trying to find a luxury brand that I cannot afford. But like, you know, you come in with a Louis Vuitton bag. Oh, you have money, but you must be new money, right? You must have struck it rich or you are- um, Or that must be fake. That must be fake, right? Or something like that. If you are a woman of color carrying a Louis Vuitton bag, if you are a, uh, if you are a white woman carrying a Louis Vuitton bag, then you're just wealthy. You're just rich. There's no conditional. 
about it. There's no, there's no wondering where the money came from. So yeah, a lot of it has to do with prejudice. A lot of it has to do with socialization that like we have, uh, even marginalized people have about themselves and what work we're capable of. We don't want to be perceived as a threat. We don't want to be perceived as uh, a non-team player or too assertive. We don't want to be fiery. We don't want to have our objectivity questioned in spaces where someone doesn't, what someone wants, someone who is objective or unemotional or impartial to deal with a problem or or tackle a story in a journalism space, uh, for example. But like, so in some cases, we do these things to ourselves because we have our own social programming that says this is how we need to succeed at work. This is what business casual looks like. This is what. Uh, a, a good employee looks like. Now, a lot of that, those things, a lot of those preconceived notions are informed by proximity to whiteness. They are our stereotypical belief of what a good office worker looks like and how a good office worker behaves and, or a good, not just office worker, but any worker, frankly. And that's where the worker bee thing comes in, where we sit down and we say, okay, I'm not like that person. I'm not the person that I think of when I see a CEO in my head. I mean, if I you think of a CEO, the vision that probably comes to your mind is an array of wealthy white men, you know, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, all of these people, but they all look kind of the same. And there's also data that points to the notion of, yes, there are more CEOs named Matt and Steve who are higher than six foot. Like, ironically, all the CEOs are higher than six foot than anyone shorter, for example. But it's stuff like that. When you have that notion in your head that I am different and I need to earn my keep, I need to earn my stripes, earn my place in this environment, earn my success, rather than the entrepreneurial person who comes in and says, I have a great idea and you should listen to my idea, which is going to make us tons of money or land that new client. The entrepreneurial guy over here, he gets the benefit of the doubt. He gets to fail if it doesn't work. He's just trying his best. He's thinking big. He's thinking out of the box. He has success on his mind. Meanwhile, the person of color or the woman at work in the male works, all, all male workspace, they have to stop and say, how can I earn that same level of respect and attention and kind of appreciation for my skills? Well, I just have to buckle down and do good work and show everybody that I do good work. And when I do the great work, then maybe I'll get that glamour assignment. The problem with that is it generally doesn't happen. You just get more work that you're good at and it turns on and on and on. And so this actually, when you were talking about how, you know, these people can come in and they have room to fail. Yeah. Um, this actually leads into another thing that you talk about in the book, which is how to say no without ruining your career. Mm -hmm. um, and I was really interested in this because I noticed that involves it involves explaining. Yes. So <laughs> saying things like, no, I'm doing X, Y, and Z and don't have the bandwidth, you know, yep. something like that. And this is interesting because it's contradictory to some of the advice that I've been given by a mm -hmm. lot of white men mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or white women who say things like, no is a complete sentence, or <laughs> you are not obligated to explain yourself. Whoa, boy, and I who gave me the impression that explaining myself too much might actually serve to make me look weaker yeah. than a firm, decisive no. Right. And it's very clear that you disagree with this. Oh, 100%. Um, <laughs> and I was wondering why you disagree and how 
you walk this balance between explaining and boundaries. Yeah, it is. uh, I mean, for as well-intended as advice like that is, it almost always comes from people who have the privilege to defend their boundaries. And it comes from people who have the privilege to say no and have that no respected. Um, Marginalized folks don't have that privilege. We just don't. We, We don't get the right to say to our boss, no, I can't take that assignment. Or I mean, not even that, just no, I don't think that assignment's right for me. Or no, I can't do that. Like that's the kind of thing that gets you fired for insubordination. And I mean, that's a that's a thing, right? Like, I mean, the last time I heard somebody fired for insubordination was either, I think, someone in the military or low-level workers at like in retail. Right. They get fired for insubordination because they dared say no when their boss called them to come in on their day off. No, I I don't I don't believe as well as intentioned as that advice is that it actually works for anybody who is marginalized or who has to deal with these these issues in the workplace. I mean, I I I wrote an article for Lifehacker. uh, Oh, geez, maybe. 10 years ago, wow, about that was exactly that headline, how to say no without ruining your career. And a lot of it had to do with reminding people, especially those who have authority over you, that you are already working because people love to come to you and say, hey, can you do this thing with the assumption that you don't have anything better to do? Uh, reminding your manager, reminding their manager or someone with authority that, hey, these are all the things that are on my plate right now. If I do this, if I take this on, something is either going to need to come off or I'm going to have to put something on the back burner so I can focus my attention on this thing. Uh, That's one great way to do it because you essentially, especially with managers, you remind them of all of the stuff you're doing because we've all had managers that don't really know what we do in a given day. And that's terrible, especially for marginalized people. But being able to say from a position of, I work really hard and the work I do is valuable, that if I take this on, if I do this, I can't do other things you already want me to do, forces the issue of prioritizing your workload back on your manager where rightfully it belongs. Your manager should be the person who tells you this is important and should be done now. That is important, but you can do it later. And I feel like that's the one thing that's really, really powerful. Another thing is being able to say no and or no but. Like, no, but I can do it later or no but and I'd love to do it, but what can I get you right now? When I was a project manager, this, this dovetails into something that I ran into all the time. Um, I would get clients that would come to me and say, hey, we need to spin up this new project with this whole fancy system. Uh, can you do it by the end of the week? <laughs> and I mean, let's, and they'd be talking to me on Wednesday and I'd tell them it's going to take me until the end of the week just to order the equipment that you need. What can I get you now that will get you by while I put together a proper timetable for this? And that's one way I had to learn how to say no, but yes, because <laughs> I can't get out of doing my job and I don't want to get out of doing my job. That's the whole point. But what I have to say is I don't have the resources right now or what, work with me on finding a middle ground where I can get you something that you need without 
dropping everything else that I have going on to focus entirely on this right now for you, unless you're my boss and that's what you want me to do. Being able to contextualize your workload that way kind of protects you from being labeled difficult to work with, or again, not a team player or insubordinate or that person that you don't want to approach with tasks because they always, they never seem to have time and they always are doing something that doesn't seem as important. You know, we've all worked with somebody who feels like they're wasting their day away. And part of the reason we feel that is either A, we don't know what they do, or B, maybe that is what they do. Maybe they are wasting their time away. But really it comes down to like, we don't know what they do and they could be way more busy than we think they are. But they just aren't communicating it to us or we're not in a position to find out. Your manager should be in a position to find out. But sometimes we have to do that extra lifting for them, especially if you are a person who's already marginalized at work. So this book has so much information in it. Like it's, it's all very wonderful, actionable information, yeah. which I really appreciate. Um, so there's, you know, there's, there's talk about what it is to be marginalized, but there's also a lot of talk about productivity, bo- like porn and yeah. which bullet journal should you give into, except not really. Um, <laughs> you don't, you don't actually talk about bullet journals. Um, no, I, I can talk about bullet journals. <laughs> I'm good. Um, <laughs> but you also talk about, you know, Pomodoro techniques, um, the different productivity things that can actually really help. And in particular, you're a big fan of weekly reviews, Mm -hmm. um, which sounds like a horrid thing at first. Um, But when you described it, I realized I actually do it myself. Yeah, yay. (laughs) Though I actually do it on Sunday nights instead of Friday afternoon or Monday morning because I'm a freelancer and my life is bizarre. Um, And I was wondering (laughs) if you could talk about what you do in your weekly review. Oh, yes. um, because this is such a useful thing. Yeah, I love I love the weekly review. It is, to, you know, to be fair, not my idea, but it's David Allen's idea. It was from his uh, getting things done productivity method, which by and large, I, I, I like it. But the weekly review is probably the only part of it that I really resonated with. And that's my other thing. My other advice to productivity folks, if you find something that works for you, keep it. Don't dedicate yourself to a whole productivity method. If it doesn't work for you. Take the bits and pieces that work for you and and uh, uh, remix them into your own Frankenstein's monster of productivity because you, you need something for yourself. But the weekly review, I take an hour every Friday and usually it's at the end of the day, probably around five or six o'clock and I stop working. And it's really, really tempting to try and get work done during your weekly review because you are going to be looking at your work and you have to resist. Don't do it. I mean, I think David Allen says, if it takes two minutes or less to do, go ahead. Like if you're going to fire off a reply to somebody that says, hey, I got your email, that's fine. But if you're going to say, hey, I got your email and here's what I think, don't do it. Um, But the important thing about the weekly review is to take some time to go back over all the meetings you went to, all of the things that you did, all of the, the work that you finished, all of the things that are in progress, the challenges that you encountered this week the emails that you still have to reply to, any phone calls that you have to get back to, people who are waiting for you, people you are waiting on, get a 10,000 foot view of the work that you're doing and why you're doing the work. And that's why it's important to not work during this period, because you want to think about your work. You want to like look at everything that you have going on, all of the things you have, all the fires you have lit, and ask yourself, does this even matter? <laughs> Like, does this work 
matter for my career? Is it personally enriching? Does it even match up with the goals and the responsibilities of my job? Does it match up with the things that my manager or my managers or my team have as their group priorities? Am I getting my team ahead by doing these things? And as you start to kind of get a a feeling for whether or not this work is busy work or it is potentially glamour work, you can start to pick apart what it is you should be spending your time on and what you can kind of shove off your plate in any way, shape or form you can. And I tell people play dirty. I mean, delegate to other people, beg friends for help, tell your manager, Hey, uh, I really, really enjoy doing this, but doing this thing over here every week sucks. Is there any way that we can kind of sign that to someone else or make it a round robin thing. That's also what I tell people to do about office housework. Like maybe you talk to your boss and say, I'd really like to focus on X, Y, Z thing that I'm really good at or really passionate about, but, uh, but ABC thing over here is really dragging me down. Maybe there's something we can do about that. You're always, if you're doing those weekly reviews and you're taking notes while you're doing them, and this is another part of that advice, keep a work diary. My work diary is a Google doc. Some people use fancy notebooks. I buy fancy notebooks and then never use them, but they're so pretty. You can't ruin them by using them. I can't ruin them. They're all on my bookshelf. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) But, but keep some kind of log of what's going on at work. All of those things, all of your successes, all of your failures, all of your challenges, all of your wins, big and small. And as you do it, you can make the case to your boss this is what I'm good at. This is what I'm passionate about. This is where I want my career to go. And then if they resonate with that, and most managers probably will, if you tell them, this is what I want to do, and this is the best work I can do, you've done part of their job for them. So they will just direct you to the stuff that they need done that seems like it's a good fit for you. If they don't, then you have taken the time to jot down exactly what you need to update your resume. And you have you already have your wins. You already have your skills. You already have a big project or a number of projects that you worked on and succeeded at, ready for that job interview that when they call you in and say, tell me about a time that you faced a challenge at work and how you overcame it. You've got examples already written down. You're, you're done. No, never again. And I, I know it sounds like a sales pitch, but it, I mean, I can't understate how powerful it is to never again be in a situation where somebody comes to you and says, so what are you working on these days? And you don't have to be like, uh, 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 um, mm, mm, and then come up with an answer. You've got it. You already know. If somebody says, you know, tell me about a time you failed, you know, that famous interview question, tell me about a time you failed and what you learned. You don't have to be like, I'm a workaholic. You just can't get me to stop working. You don't have to do that. You have a real answer to that question written down already. And so powerful, especially for people who don't get that kind of feedback and who need to advocate for themselves. It's just such a powerful time to spend just you and your work and your head every week to kind of reacquaint yourself with why you're even doing the things that you do and where you want to go. So I feel like in this book, there's a ton of amazing advice and a lot of really helpful stuff, but it's also interesting to me because there's a certain amount of advice that kind of feels like it contradicts itself. So like Mm -hmm. be part of teams, but be wary of helping. 
True. Set boundaries, but don't be threatening or difficult <laughs> to your own horn. But also, if you do, people will look at you badly. Don't complain unless you can offer a solution, but also don't wait until your solution idea is fully formed. Right, right. Schedule your email checking unless it's really necessary. Email. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are, are, are these things really contradictory or is there kind of a thread here. There is a thread. I mean, I, and I will absolutely, and this is just part and parcel of writing about productivity for as long as I have, I will absolutely take the, the criticism that it can be contradictory. It absolutely can, because not all tips are for all people. And I think that in some cases, yes, you can and should to like, for example, to your own horn, crow about your achievements and accomplishments, but Keep in mind that the louder you are, the more someone's going to want you to be quiet, because especially if you're a member of a marginalized group, sometimes it's about tooting your horn to the people who will listen and not the people who will marginalize you. And like that is that is some of those threads, right, that tells you how to prioritize the things that you do for a better career in ways that actually matter. And so one of the things that I do talk about in the book is making sure you find community, you find advocates who will resonate with you, people who will, uh, and not necessarily at work. I mean, if you can find them at work, great, but I, I really recommend people find them outside of work through like employee resource groups or professional communities, uh, professional associations um, and industry groups and things like that. But those are the people in some cases you want to toot your horn too. Those are the people you want to dash off that quick email to or or email off hours to because those are people who are in your corner already. And knowing when to sink that extra level of energy in and when that extra energy is going to be rewarded either with good karma or by somebody else who understands what you're going through, uh, and will support you either through it or later on down the line. That's super important. But yeah, I mean, sometimes I, I will completely say I just edited an article for Wired about the importance of time boxing your schedule. And not everybody can do that. Not everyone can do that. Um, some people, like I talk about managing up a lot, like trying to massage your manager into understanding that your priorities are their priorities. Therefore, they should leave you alone. <laughs> like things like that. That doesn't work for everyone. It, it really doesn't. And I mean, in some cases, I can give you the tools as a marginalized worker to try your best at it. But if it doesn't work, don't do it. Do not do it. Um, I think a lot of the things that I recommend are things that people should try and see how they play out in their career or in their specific workplace. Because some things that work in one workplace won't work in another. They will work for some marginalized folks. They won't work for others. They'll work for office workers, but not like Amazon factory workers, you know, things like that. It, it's it's a it's a wide gamut. But I do think that a lot of it is about examining the advice and your specific work environment and who you are and whether you feel comfortable applying this, this particular advice and then deciding whether it's right for you. Well, Alan, thank you so much for sharing yeah. such hard-won knowledge about the workplace. <laughs> I mean, if I learned it, I'm glad to share it with anybody who can put it to use without having to go through what I went through. <laughs> so I am, you are very welcome and I'm glad to do it. If you'd like to learn more about Alan Henry and his new book, Seen, Heard, and Paid, The New Work Rules for the Marginalized, which comes out on June 7th, 2022, we've got more info on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Of course, please do subscribe to our show if you haven't already. Get your nerd on with us. You can also follow us on all the 
Yes, and please do leave us a review and tell us what you do or don't like about the show. Reviews on places like Apple Podcasts really do matter, and we absolutely take your feedback seriously. And if you're up for it, we also have a Patreon where you can support our wonderful editors and producers with a monthly donation and help keep this podcast free. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgower, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 